Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark's 10th chapter. We have the passage before us and then one more paragraph and then we're in Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. It has been so fast-paced to find Jesus where he is with his little band of struggling and bewildered believers now on the road to Jerusalem. Feels like we are on holy ground and almost need to remove our sandals. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a larger section today because it's a section. I'll explain that in a minute. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we did a, a passage, a sermon that was titled, a, a First Lesson on True Greatness. Well, the title today is A Second Lesson on True Greatness, which is very much a parallel of what we saw earlier. Let me read that for us. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. Those who followed were fear, fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten, not James and John, began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you, within your group, shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to become first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Everyone learns lessons. We learn them fast. We learn them slow. We learn them from reading. We learn them from watching. We sometimes think we've learned a lesson only to find out that we fail again and didn't learn the lesson at all. Sometimes we don't even learn. And we learn these lessons typically by watching others or we learn by our own experience. Now, 1 Corinthians informs us in chapter 10 that the things that happened in the Old Testament happened for a multitude of reasons. But one of the things that God recorded all of these incidents in the Old Testament with all of these men and women and saints and sinners one of the reasons that was recorded was to show us the lessons to be learned from their experience so we don't have to make the same mistakes. The entire book of, of uh, Ecclesiastes is that message. 
Solomon is saying to a younger generation, listen to my mistakes and don't make them. I got in a car, I drove off a cliff, I crashed, I got on fire, I rolled myself out. I'm pushing the ashes from my arm and I see you up on the cliff getting in a car. Don't do that. Far better to learn from another's experience than yours. I remember so very well as the oldest of of four siblings with my two younger brothers and I going out picking blackberries and coming up to a fence that I knew or I thought was electric and asking my little brother to to check. (laughs) And it was. It's better to learn from someone else's experience than your own. Well, this passage before us is a lesson. It's a package. It's a lesson. Notice that this passage feels like two passages. Jesus' prediction of his death And then James and John asking who's the greatest and where they can sit. But what stitches them together are the brackets. Jesus begins by talking about his coming death and the whole passage ends by his death being offered as a ransom for many. It's all a unit intended to teach a contrast. It's penetrating, it's instructive, it is humbling to see these contrasting scenes we see the most important laid alongside the most trivial. trivial. We, we see the eternal laid alongside the temporal. We see God's serving heart laid aside man's ambition, an ambitious heart. And the structure of this passage is, is paired with the other two predictions we've already looked at in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus gives an almost identical prediction of his coming suffering, his coming death, but here is far more detailed. And each time Jesus speaks to these men about the coming horrors of his death, listen, the conversation is immediately directed by the disciples to their own position, their own rank, and their own greatness. Not only did that happen in God's providence, but it was recorded by Mark, by Matthew, and by Luke to see that Jesus says, this is true greatness. It's serving, it's humility, it's sacrifice. It's my cross. And the men's response is, so where does that put us? Where do we fit? How can we be appreciated? How can we be known? Their ambition is embarrassingly presumptuous. And Jesus teaches each time that service and humility are the key ingredients for greatness. They're about to be exposed. These men are about to be discredited, not just the two, but the 12. At a moment when they ought to be the most loyal and the most faithful, almost within a week of Jesus' death, the most loyal friends, they find themselves stepping on each other's heads to try to get to the highest point. William Lane in his excellent commentary on Mark says this, the pronouncement of Jesus concerning the servant vocation of the son of man who seals his service with sacrifice of his own life for the many goes beyond the instruction given to the disciples in chapter nine, verses 35 to 37. It brings the question of rank, precedence and service into profound pastoral and theological perspective. He's right. So we're gonna break this this, um, event down, this walk into the two scenes that, that Mark breaks them down. Two contrasting scenes about true greatness. Two contrasting scenes about true greatness. You notice at the end of the passage is great men who do great things, who are in great positions of rank. That was what the disciples had on their mind. So Jesus uses his own life and his instruction to the men to say, I want to tell you what true honor, true greatness, and true glory really are. The first scene is in verses 32 to 34, the Lord's prediction, the Lord's prediction. Namely, the ultimate display of greatness through serving. That's what he's going to teach us. The ultimate display of greatness through serving. Verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, 
If you're a Bible student of any level, you understand how important geography is. And it is very important in the scene before us. This trip from where they were in Perea across the Jordan River, just across from Herod's palace, in Perea they were going to approach Jerusalem. And to approach Jerusalem was no simple task. It's one of the most storied roads in the entire Bible. Jerusalem is southwest of Jericho. Think about this, southwest of Jericho. But all travelers go up to Jerusalem. There's a reason for that. The road from the Jericho area up to Jerusalem was and is, I've traveled it several times, 18 miles and it is a serious climb. It is rare to go up that road without some poor bus broken down on the side from that climb. Jericho is beside the Dead Sea, some 825 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. That climb is made in 18 miles. Mark informs us in verse 32, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were going up to Jerusalem. Jesus, though, goes ahead of them, which doesn't seem to be much of a statement, except we find out that this was shocking to the disciples. They were amazed and, and the ones who followed were fearful. What is going on here? This is an interesting detail that Mark highlights that tells us the conflicted nature of these men. And it shouldn't surprise us that they're so conflicted. They have watched Jesus heal the sick, feed the hungry, walk on water, raise the dead. When you're with a man like that, you're confident. And yet, they had heard at least twice that Mark records already before this scene that Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we do, the Son of Man, I am going to be delivered over to the religious experts, the Jewish leadership. I'm going to be tried, given to the Gentiles, and executed before your very eyes. And I'll rise from the dead three days later. They had both the excitement of knowing he was the Messiah to go rule and reign with him. That's at the core of this text. But also the fear of, does he know that the people there are upset with him? They were amazed. They will be even more amazed after Jesus tells them what is going to happen to them. And he goes on ahead. He he makes separation between him and them and he's marching uphill in a strenuous, fast pace to his death. This group begins to ascend the road Perea. They cross the Jordan. They come into Jericho. All that's left is the high, uh, to heal blind Bartimaeus, and we'll do that next time. Actually, Jesus will do that next time. Actually, Jesus already did it a long time ago. As time would pass, the memory of this event would stick in the minds of the disciples. They would remember what happened in Jerusalem and that when he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was in a hurry to get there. They were climbing the road with the Lord's sentence to death. Luke 9.51 speaks of this and says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. If you and I knew that someone was waiting just down the street to kill us, we might not walk fast there. Jesus is quite different because there's purpose in his death. There's redemption and salvation as we'll see in the last verse of this passage. The men's fear is conflicted disposition. They want to be with him. They want him to rule. They want him to reign. They, know they believe he's the Messiah, but they also know that there's a death sentence out for him. They were amazed. They were fearful. Somehow they knew there was danger awaiting their group in Jerusalem. But they were also confident being with Jesus. And you would be too if you'd seen what they had seen. They were in awe and they were in fear. Then Mark says, again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Just let that deep dive into your heart. They're walking up, pause, walks to the side, gets off the road. The traffic's going both ways. And he says, listen, 
you need to know what's about to happen. He details his coming suffering and death. And each specific part of this prophecy and prediction comes true in the most exact way in the coming chapters of Mark. Now, of Jesus' three prophecies of his coming death and suffering, this is the most specific, as I said. And then he begins to teach them, verse 33. Behold. And just before we get into the details of this, I just want to tell you, we're going to cover this as a prophecy and a prediction. And when we get to these events, we'll come back and stitch it to this. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Remember, they're lower than sea level, going up to 2,500 feet. And the Son of Man, that's Jesus' identification of, of himself with the incarnation, with God in flesh, with the only one who could be the sin bearer for other men. The Son of Man will be delivered. That's the ultimate disloyalty. That's Judas. He will be delivered, betrayed, turned over. To who? To the chief priests and the scribes. This is the ultimate misunderstanding. Understand who missed Jesus most. The scribes and the chief priests. These are the men who should have known. The chief priests, by the way, there was only one chief priest a year. There was a whole collection of them who would serve. These are men who should have known, who should have recognized, if anyone should have known, the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah and the Messianic prophecies. It should have been these religious experts. Insert the term theologian for the word scribe. And they missed it. Ultimate disloyalty ultimate misunderstanding. And they will condemn him, these chief priests and these scribes, these, the people who should, who should know better, they will be the ones who condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's the ultimate injustice. Listen to how extreme these are. The ultimate disloyalty with Judas, the ultimate misunderstanding by the theologians, the ultimate injustice by the Jews and Gentiles to crucify a man, listen, who had never sinned once. Now Mark, or Jesus rather, reverses the order. That's the end. Now he comes back to the suffering before the cross would happen. They will mock him and they will mock him in chapter 15, verse, verses 17 to 20. And spit on him, the ultimate indignity in the Middle East. That's chapter 14, verse 65 and 15, 19. In other words, this is the ultimate ridicule. Creatures will spit in the face of the creator. They will scourge him. That happens in chapter 15, verse 15, and, and kill him. That's the ultimate suffering. It was his passion. It's what began in the garden and ended on the cross. Ultimate suffering of body and soul, of separation between God the Father and God the Son, a temporary, mysterious, inexplicable breach in the Godhead. I want to tell you, when we come where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you, have you forsaken me? I am theologically bankrupt at that moment. How can God turn his face on God? I don't know, but it happened. And then three days later, he will rise again, the ultimate vindication. The ultimate vindication. How would we know that Jesus is who he said he was and that those miracles were really of God and his teaching really was of authority born in heaven? How would we know that if he ends in such a tragic way? Because he rises from the grave, that's how. And before we go on, can I just invite you, if you believe those facts and commit yourself to that Lord, he will be gracious and faithful to save you from the coming wrath, the sin that you deserve, forever in hell, separated from God, no appeal, no second chance. He offers you salvation and redemption and hope and resurrection because of his life and death and sacrifice on your account. And he rose from the dead to offer you eternal life. 
What a day to come to this passage to hear his prediction of what did happen and ask yourself if this is what your life is committed to. You will never, ever look back if you submit your life to Jesus Christ. Fulfillment, happiness, forgiveness, hope, perspective, fellowship, friends like you've never had. We could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about the benefits that Christ gives us by simply believing the good news that he's the Savior and the only Savior for sin. Don't miss the divinity of Christ here. For Jesus to know this about what's coming demands omniscience. You understand that? He didn't say, well, I'm gonna go up there and I think some bad things might happen. I know they're mad at me up there. No, no. He predicted to the nth degree in logical order what was going to happen. And it will happen exactly this way. Still, he walks on ahead in the shadow of these painful details with the full reality and omniscient awareness that he was walking to the cross. Why? Because of love. Because of faithfulness to his father and love for those who would believe. That's why. Imagine a philanthropist who had a million dollars in $100 bills. And he went downtown Kansas City, went up on the 10th floor of a building and saw everyone walking around and you and I were there. And he just threw it all out, a million dollars in $100 bills out there. This for free, no, no, no strings attached. Would you not be stuffing as much as you could in there? I feel like that's what's in this passage and we don't have time to stuff it all in our pockets, but we are gonna come back to each one of these details. But what's clear about this moment in the prediction of his passion and suffering is not just the details as important as they are. It's the contrast of his life with what's about to happen. Which brings us to the second Contrasting scene about true greatness. The Lord's prediction, number one, the ultimate display of greatness through suffering. And secondly, now we find the disciples' ambition, the empty desire for greatness through position. The disciples' ambition, the empty desire for greatness through rank or through position. There are some elements that are going to be underneath this heading that we'll just walk through. There are principles of what it means to pursue false greatness. We'll just kind of outline those as we go. First, notice that it involves ignoring gospel truth. Greatness through position, greatness through rank involves ignoring gospel truth. This is from the context. The point is simply implied that Jesus just said this and there's no response. Think of these two statements. If I told you, today I'm going to die, would you have a question? If I told you how I was going to die, might you have another? If I told you how I was going to suffer, might you have some curiosity? What if I told you not only that, I'm gonna rise from the dead. Would you not say, uh, question? They ignore Jesus' words. Now stop it. Stop judging them. I know what you're doing. You're thinking, how could they do that? Really? How often have we meditated on the post hoc reflection of what happened and the theological meaning explained in the scripture, how much have we looked back knowing more than they knew here this week? Oh, it's easy to find rocks to throw, isn't it? Wow. Conversation that's about to transpire would have been absolutely impossible if the disciples had been listening. Jesus had just given them the factual basis for the atonement they just, he just laid out the events of the most unjust event in the history of the world. He has just implicated Jews and Gentiles, all of us, for the death of the Son of Man. He had just told them that their friend, their mentor, their master was walking up the hill to suffer and die within a week. 
Their response? They ignored it. Listen, ignoring or forgetting the truths of the gospel will always have regrettable results. Then and now, before and after the cross, ignoring or forgetting the truths of the gospel will always have regrettable results. That's why we, we celebrate the Lord's table. He knew we would forget. So he keeps saying, remember, remember, remember. Another part of false greatness, letter B, is leveraging Christ for position. This is almost too hard to even read. Men, I'm going to suffer, mock, spat upon, unjustly tried, scourged, beaten beyond recognition, die and rise from the dead. Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You want them to say, Teacher, explain to us your death. Why? How? Shouldn't we go the other way? Teacher, um, we have some requests. I, I know you, you have some things that are on your mind, but, but listen to what's on ours. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Notice, is this not like children? There's the request to do whatever they ask before they ask what they want. Isn't that clever? Will you promise that you'll do whatever I say? Don't ever answer that question without knowing what they're going to say. So Jesus says to them, that the patience here is incredible. I would have said, did you not hear anything I just said? And he says, well, um, what do you want me to do for you? Do you see the patience of almighty God in human flesh in that response? Is that what you would have said if you had been Jesus here? No, neither would I. And they answered. They were ready. They said, well, I'll tell you what. Grant that we, James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, these powerful men, Grant that we may sit on your right and on your and one on your left ooh, in your glory. Now, it's uh, the, the goal of going through Mark, as you know, is to teach Mark's passages and not the event as recorded in all the gospels. But we cannot help but notice that Matthew adds this little footnote about this request. You know what it is? Matthew 20, verse 21. And he said to her, who's her? James and John's mom. What do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. So apparently not only was, was James and John asking this, but so was their mom, a grown man. Hey, and this was the idea. We know you're going to go up to Jerusalem. We know you're the Messiah. We know you're the king. We know you're going to have a fancy banquet that everyone's going to come and look at who your associates are. And the people sitting closest to you will get the most appreciation. James and John wanted to sit in the shotgun seat, the best seat, the most honored seat. Sons of thunder come to thunder again. They did believe Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, or they would not have requested this. And it's reasonable to assume they believe that somehow, despite their fears and what was going to happen, and ignoring what Jesus said, that the, he, he would rule, he would reign, he would be king, and they would have a banquet, and they would have good seats. How do you ask this after Jesus has just said, I'm going to die now, I, I read somewhere, and I just, I'm sorry, I can't buy this, that someone said, well, you know, Jesus told them he was going to rise from the dead, so they were anticipating that banquet after that. No, no, no. There's no response to that. They wanted the recognition of being with Jesus. Listen, men, women, young and old, those who teach Sunday school, those who pastor and preach, those who teach 
theology classes and Sunday school classes of any kind at any level, beware of this this foreshadowing, that there is the temptation that because we know the Lord, we leverage him for our own recognition. We leverage truth for our own rank. We leverage what we know to put attention on us and our glory, not, not Christ and his. There's a powerful lesson there. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. This must have just been drenched in sadness. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They misunderstood glory. They misunderstood glory. John 13 and John 17, when Jesus, when Judas walks out of the room in John 13 to betray him, he says, now is the son of man glorified. In other words, glory was gonna come through suffering in the cross. They wanted to sit with him in his glory. Jesus is saying, do you really know what my glory is? Are you really aware of what you're asking? He's saying in effect, do you realize that in requesting participation in my glory, you're asking to share in my painful destiny? In the prophecy I just uttered? Which leads to a third characteristic of false greatness. Overestimating your own spiritual abilities. Are you able to to go through what I'm going? We'll get to that in a moment. It's just hard to read. Verse 39, they said, we're able. Yep. Yeah, whatever you said, which we're not paying much attention to, and whatever you think is going to happen, which we are vaguely aware of, and we are a little fearful, but you're going to be king. We want to sit in the right and the left, the places of promise. Sure, we're able to drink the cup and be baptized with those things that are in your future. Jesus said to them, oh, would they remember this? Oh, would they remember this? James being murdered, John being exiled and left to die on an island of Patmos. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What's going to happen to me in my suffering? You will experience a level of yourself. But to sit on my right and left, not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. You can put in parentheses in your mind by the Father. The ignorant pride here is astonishing. They hear about the cup. They hear about baptisms. They assess themselves and say, we are able to do what you are going to do. Now, let's break that down a bit. To share and drink from someone's cup was a recognized expression for sharing someone's fate. In the Old Testament, the cup is a common metaphor for the wrath of God's judgment upon human sin and rebellion. So when the Lord speaks of the cup in verse 38, he's pointing specifically and directly to the designation of God judging him on the cross in the place of wicked sinners. Jesus powerfully applies this this image of the cup to himself that the prophets and the psalmists describe as God's rightful wrath. Psalm 78, verse 75, verse eight. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of wine of the wrath of my hand. So to drink the cup meant to endure the wrath of God. It's the cup of wrath that Jesus willfully and willingly drank on behalf of sinners who deserve that wrath. (laughs) James and John said, sure, we're able to do it. Baptism just means association. You put the cup and the baptism together. Baptism is 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 a public testimony to something. He's saying, I'm being baptized. I am... I am being associated with divine wrath on the cross. That's the point. When Jesus says that these positions, by the way, are not his to assign the right and the left, they're the father's, 
He's not denying his deity. He's not denying his authority. He's demonstrating the consistent submission to the Father that he has his whole life. William Lane again says, The appointment of the places of honor is the Father's prerogative. And James and John are only given the assurance that these will be assigned to those who have been prepared by him. Jesus doesn't even say, no, you can't sit there. They may be there. We don't know. He just said, those are the fathers to give. Trust him. It gets worse. A fourth characteristic here of wrongful aspiration for greatness, disregarding others. Disregarding others. Verse 41. Hearing this, stop right there. Mom and James and John are coercing Jesus for good seats. Where are the other 10? Right there with them. Hearing this, can you imagine their disbelief? Well, you don't have to. Look at the next phrase. They began to feel indignant as such a sweet word. Angry, incensed with James and John. It's a strong Greek word that says they were about to overflow with anger and wrath themselves. Mark pans back. He gives a wide angle view of the men. It's mom and James and John. And then you get a wider angle. And these other guys are going, can you see their faces? I mean, in the common vernacular, it would be, dudes, what are you thinking? This is an indicting statement for James and John, but it's also indicting for the other 10. They don't say, wait for the Father to assign those seats. Why do you think they're mad? Because they wanted those seats. Mom beat them to the punch. Listen, you know this by experience, and now you know it by scriptural authority. Ambition in the human heart always steps on another human's head to step up. Disregarding others. This goes both ways. James and John were not caring about the other 10, and the other 10 were not caring so much about James and John. They don't say, oh, that's a great, they're great guys. They should have the best places. That's not what happens. They were all selfish. They were furious at these two brothers. They were thinking about leadership, position, greatness, rank, in the same way that the world thinks about that. And just for a moment, can you sense the cruel loneliness of the Savior? I'm going to suffer, mocked, scourged, spat on, die, and rise again. My time has come. And the men, the closest men in his life from whom he should have been receiving comfort, are bickering about who's most important. Wow. Another characteristic is here, verses 42 to 44, imitating ungodly leaders. I just told you they were acting like the world. That's exactly what Jesus says. Imitating ungodly leaders, defining leadership by the world calling them to himself. He, he sees that there's tension between the two and the ten. And ever the peacemaker, the Lord calls them to himself and said to them, and he addresses the situation that's caused their argument, that's caused their consternation, that's made them indignant at each other. He addresses it head on. You know that those who are, look at these phrases, recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, rank, privilege, position, honor. Guess what? You know what their MO is? They lord it over them. Worldly ambition unchecked by gospel realities in the heart always, always, always ends in a lording over kind of authority. He gives an example. And they're great men. They want to be great men. 
This is obviously a jab right at them. You want to be great men. They're great men. The men that you want to be like and recognized by sitting on my right and on my left. And everybody's saying, oh, we, want to, we want to see James and John. I want to get lunch with them. They're great men, the kind of men you're aspiring to be. They're great men. Exercise authority over them, but it is not that way among you. These are lords, ungracious lords. They exercise authority. They flex the authority uh, and position muscle every time they can. And then verse 43, but, but, but men, listen, men, it is not this way among you. This way is the way of leadership. It's the way of greatness. It's the way of influence. And then he, he turns, turns the table. He turns, it's contrary. It's completely opposite. But contrasted with these worldly leaders, whoever wishes to become great among you, disciples, shall be your, I really don't like this word, servant. Sounds like an old British movie with servants' quarters, taking care of. You know what the word is? Slave. Slave. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your slave. When he gets to Jerusalem, he will illustrate this, John 13, by becoming the slave, taking the position of the slave girl who would have come in and washed their feet. He accents it. Whoever wishes to begin first, that's what they wanted. Who wants to sit in the best places? You shall be the slave of all. Instead of seeking the places of prominence, true greatness seeks the genuine service of making someone's life better because they know you. It's service. He contrasts the positions of greatness among the Gentiles and what he expects of his own followers. And we get a glimpse of what leadership was like in the first century. And it's not dissimilar to our own, right? Politicians and unjust bosses and teachers and the like. The simplicity of this lesson is staggering. Verses 43 and 44 are so counterintuitive. Listen, Christians lead by serving. Christians lead by serving. Secondly, Christians lead by in humility. They lead in humility. Humility is making someone else more important than you. There's serving, there's humility, and then Christians don't compete for position. They humbly serve. They're not competitors. They don't look at what someone else has, what someone else is blessed by. They rejoice in that and look for places to disappear and serve. which leads to the final characteristic of false greatness, disregarding Christ's instruction. We began with the cross, and guess where Jesus ends this? This is what stitches these two scenes together. As he gives them the rightful lecture, I mean, imagine the Savior who's never sinned, and he's saying, don't be, don't be, don't be. But be like me. Verse 45. For even, even the Son of Man, the one who is just predicted would be suffering and dying for the sins of those who believe, the Son of Man, that's the bracket, Son of Man at the beginning, Son of Man at the end, did not come to be served Can we just stop right there? If any entity, personality, human, or God himself ever deserved to be served, it was Jesus. Just imagine sometimes his, his growing up in, in Nazareth, <clears throat> working as a Mason or a carpenter with his father and probably playing games with the kids. 
He had six brothers and sisters, maybe interacting with them day in and day out and doing chores, no doubt. Being a holy son and a, a good boy. All the while knowing that all around him, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess his true identity. But instead of the only one who has ever had reason to boast, bragging, you know what he did? He came to serve. He came to serve. What's the ultimate expression of that serving? Look at verse 45 at the end. How costly was his own service? And to give his life as a ransom for many he reverses all thinking about rank and greatness and leadership, about position and stature by teaching, by example. The ransom metaphor is important here. It goes to the idea of substitutionary atonement. He was the ransom. He was the substitute in place of those who should die, who should be cruelly treated, who should be in hell forever, who should endure the wrath of God. He was the ransom for us, the payment for us. He says, for many, it's all those who believe. This is vicarious life and vicarious death. Vicarious righteous life given to our account, vicarious death instead of us. That's the ransom idea. That was his service. Verse 45 assumes that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Please don't turn there, just, just listen. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, that's Jesus before God. Like a root out of parched ground, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't brag. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we, we did not esteem him. Listen to the ransom. Listen to the substitution. Listen to the vicarious nature of Jesus' work. Surely our griefs he himself bore our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Is that not the disciples? Is that not us when we forget? But even though he was forgotten, he still was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, his scourging, we experience healing. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, afflicted, didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so did he not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There's the cup. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of many people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was signed with a wicked man. With a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death. We will see that happen in a few chapters. Because he had done no violence, no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth, never erred. But, but the Lord was pleased to crush him after all these descriptions of why we should be crushed, the Lord was pleased not to crush him, but us instead. Him instead of us, rather. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, there's the ransom. He will see his offspring, will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. John was one of these two. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, he will one day write, We know by this 
We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I think John got the message. What do we do with this text? What do we do with this text so much? Can we look over the shoulder and read the pen of one of my historical heroes, J.C. Ryle? Talked about this text. Let me read you what he said. There are few true Christians who do not resemble James and John. We could just stop right there and go home. (laughs) When they first begin service to Christ, I could add, and when we persist in service to Christ, we are apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the gospel warrants us to expect. We are apt to forget the cross and tribulation and to think only of the crown. We form an incorrect estimate of our own patience and power of endurance. We misjudge our own ability to stand temptation and trial. And the result of all of this is that we often buy wisdom dearly, buy bitter experience, by many disappointments and not with a few, after many disappointments and not with a few falls. Let the case before us, these passage, teach us the importance of a solid and calm judgment in our religion, our Christianity. Like James and John, we are right in coveting the best gifts and telling our desires to Christ. Like them, we are right in believing that Jesus is the King of kings and will one day reign upon the earth. But let us not, like them, forget that there is a cross to be borne by every Christian and that through much tribulation we must enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22 says. Let us not be like them by uh, be overconfident in our own strength, forward in our professing that we can do anything that Christ requires. Let us, in short, beware of a boastful spirit when we first begun, begin to run the Christian course. If we remember this, it may save us many a humbling fall. That's so good. Where, where are you? Where am I in this, this passage? It's not hard to see, is it? What would your life and our church be like if we were serious about crushing our ambition, serving each other, making more of Jesus than ourselves, and joyfully looking to disappear that he might have glory.